Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And as six years have gone by on my program, uh, the spirits have called at many a time and uh, oftentimes has answered my calls. And um, I get a chance today to uh, talk to a cat who's been a a pivotal uh, player and musician in my uh, recent existence in terms of finding peace and calm amidst the madness that we're all dealing with. Uh, He's long since, uh, this is many years removed from the music scene or the music industry, but it is such a high honor. When I reached out to Jim Keltner a couple weeks ago, I said, where is this cat? Because I have to get to him and talk to him a little bit because he's been a huge inspiration for me. And now I get a chance to do it. Paul Stallworth, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, um, question for you. Um, I, uh, I was talking to uh, Julian Priester, who's a great trombone player uh, and uh, grew up in Chicago. Uh, and he really grew up with spirituals. And, uh, and he grew up playing on the bandstand with cats like um, uh, Muddy Waters and also played with Sun Ra in the 50s and kind of before Sun Ra went way out. And... Uh, but I wanted to ask you if you could just talk to the audience about how you developed your time feel, your your inner time feel. How did that come about for Paul Stallworth? Time field. Time feel. Oh, time feel. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not not field. Feel your 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 own feel because you know what it is like. There are cats today that you know. I think a lot of peeps growing up in the digital world they think that the arms and the and the shoulders, and, and they create, on the drums, they create the sound. No, it's the heartbeat. So you have to have an inner time feel, and I wanted you to talk about your own evolution with your time feel. Well, um, I've never thought of it, but now, <laughs> now that I am. I'm... That's the Jake Feinberg show right there, okay? You're, this, is, this is the point of the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's just something that was there, innate because uh um i surely didn't go looking for it and uh it was just something clicking inside of me that always got me kicked out of class before tapping on my desk and you know and patting on the sides of the um, they had these old school desks that had these three metal sides and you put your books underneath sure and they had great tones man oh my god <laughs> three, three different tones and you go boom doo, boom boom doo, boom 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 and, you know, it, the tones were there, but the other thing came from somewhere I don't know. And so the first instrument I actually started playing uh, was drums, bongos, actually. Wow. And because uh, I couldn't afford drums. And then when I finally could, I got me a snare. 
and maybe a year or two later I got uh, a kit and played with some guys you know I was I was living in Europe at the time really young and um so my influence in music was of course my mom and dad are avid lovers of music my dad loved the gospel and country and my mom liked just about anything so I was kind of around vocalizations and singing all the time did you um, did you learn dynamics from them I'm well only the dynamics that was offered through the music they listened to you know Mahalia Jackson and, and stuff like that uh, um, and then when I finally got to uh, get my hands on drums uh, I was gone <laughs> did you did you did you say you you were you were growing up in Europe did I hear that correctly yes so yes so this is interesting um, I mean could you because where you go back to Minton's or Small's Paradise in Harlem, you know, the, the culture was out in the street. And um, even in L.A. at a time, or you could go into these, you know, New, New York and Puerto Rican neighborhoods and everybody had conga drums. What was the culture like on the streets of where you were living? I mean, was it was the music out and visceral? Like, was it right in your face? No. As a matter of fact, it wasn't. I think I li- I got all of my most ninety percent of my input from uh, those good old forty five RPMs. You know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Still got them. <laughs> I love. It. So and, I mean, you're talking like, but we're you're talking about like Mahalia Jackson. We're not talking about like. Did you get it? Was your was your pops into like the sanctified sound, like Willie Banks and the Messengers and the, you know the the. When I hear you singing, no, pretty much, yeah. pretty much the light stuff, you know. Yeah, the light stuff, right? <laughs> the cor- coral, you know, coral, coral kind of stuff, you know. Right. Um, uh, and and that was their listening thing. And I mind when I got my my hands on records and stuff, I would listen to, of course, any Motown or Stax, uh, um, any of those things with the big hole in it. <laughs> but you're you're were you were you uh were your parents expats were they originally from Europe or are they from the states No from the states uh, my father was in the service so uh, I was like an army brat and uh besides living in, in uh, Europe and Asia for numerous years uh I spent up to that point less time in this country than I did in those so the music was uh way different my only, my source of american music was through records and um so when i finally left europe and came back came back here i was i was a drummer absolutely no, i want to i want to stay with this pocket for a minute because this mm-hmm. is so fascinating where you're like where when you got your hands on a trap set can you talk about um ultimately like you talked about this innate feel, you were clearly gifted with it, but you were, did you recognize the, um, the interplay between cats like Pistol Allen and Jamerson where like any note could be the one theoretically you get into that melodic groove. And I'm just curious about when you got on the trap set, when you, how quickly you started to not just keep time, but actually play the melody, play the tune. Because everybody else, you, everybody else had to be have their own internal rhythm. Yeah, well, it was, it was such a hit and miss thing because my, my 
actually my first trap set would usually would turn out to be somebody else's and uh <laughs> and if they got off of it i'd be on it <laughs> you know right. for the longest right. time and uh you know fortunately not too many people got upset about that but uh yeah, and, and I think because of where I was raised, my input was so, you know, I, I could listen to Asian music and and I can find a groove in it right now. Um, so, I mean, music, fortunately, music is so universal. You know, if you're listening and you can hear it, you can, oh, well, uh, it seems to me you can actually, you, you can see the colors or the, the whatever it's, whatever it is, that energy. And if you can... Uh, let go enough and enjoy it because it goes forever. So I, I, I can't explain it much more than that in words because I was never professionally, you know, um, learned or educated in well, music. And that's, and that's one reason I'm intoxicated with your uh, generation. I mean, I had a drummer from Tucson in here yesterday playing, talking, you know, part, part application and part wisdom, and, and the dude came from Kentucky and never – you know, I mean, he's playing, he did like, he opened like a two or three minute solo and it was like just funky, man. It was just so funky and, and he, and he had, I don't think he's even practiced in his life. So it's mm-hmm. sort of, it's like this, it's like this gifted thing. So can you talk about, I mean, uh, what year did you come back? I mean, did you start your professional music career overseas? Uh, more amateur, you know, I played in, uh, one or two bands of people my age, and then I I, I kind of got into playing at the uh, service club, which was a military thing where they allowed, you know, they gave soldiers access to things like music equipment, a library, or games and stuff. And I'd go down and jam with some of these guys, and I wound up playing with a couple jazz trios, uh, which which is something I'd never even listened to, but it was just that thing. It was obvious, you know. And wait, 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 wait. You have copies of these tapes? Oh, no. So no, these, you... there were no tapes. These were these were done, like, in cl- little bars and clubs and uh, social centers. Um, real amateur. This wasn't professional. The professional thing didn't start till I got back over here. Yeah, no, I want to stay with the jazz for a minute. You're talking, Are we? can we peg this, like, early 60s, mid-60s? When was this? Well, let's see. I got back in '64, so it would have been uh, late '50s and early '60s. Wow! Unbuilt. Can you talk a little bit about? Were you playing standards? I mean, who were you? I mean, were you the type of cat? Like, I dig the fact that you didn't have an academic. You learned on the bandstand, but were you hip to? Uh, were, like, were you interested in finding out who was playing? Like uh, with Bill Evans on traps and trio, or or Colin Bailey with Vince Guaraldi. Were you getting all? Were you <laughs> were you trying to study? Were you aware of those cats? Absolutely not. Never heard of them. <laughs> I never heard of them. I you know the old per- person I le- I remember I listened to the album to learn how to do these press rolls and stuff was a guy named Gene Krupa. Oh, of course. Yeah, and uh, besides him and uh, Louis Armstrong. And uh, let's say, who else would I remember? Those were the only kind of jazz folks I knew. And the people I played with over there who are, you know, I wouldn't know their names. <laughs> but, you know, they were trios or quartets. You know, like even one night on a stormy night, I had I was called in to go sit in with, uh, what's their name? The Platters. Oh, my God. The Platters? They're drummers. 
yeah, the drummers didn't make the gig, and they were at this at this service club, enlisted men's service club, and no drummer. And I I I had heard of them for sure, and I was just blown away. That was probably my first gig. I don't even know if I got paid. It didn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, but that is not. I mean, what were you? That's not jazz, really. I mean that. No, well, it isn't. But I mean, you know, that's what for me. I, music was just this un un uh, classified thing. I dig, man. It's all music. It's yes, all music. Absolutely. Okay. That's why I love. I can play country music. I can play. I can play drums to classic music, classical music, and I do just for fun because it's classical music is pretty damn funky. <laughs> <laughs> when you get to it, it really is. No, I, well, I don't know. I haven't gotten, Harry, so, I mean, you really, like, um, this is fantastic. So did you play in the jazz context? Did you ever play in, like, a, an organ quartet? Mm, oh, well, yes, absolutely. Um, when I got back here, there was a place called Jimbo's in Monterey Bay Area, Seaside. I used to play down there for weeks on the weekends with a... Uh, this trio and um the guy played b3 with pedals and we had a sax player you, he was kicking pedals who was the b3 cat who was that cat oh my god oh. i'm stretching you out dude he was kicking yeah. pedals which most b3 players don't they normally play the left hand bass this guy right. was... no, no, this guy this guy was pedals man oh my god you gotta tell me this is this is what i live for see so he, he was pedal he, he it was basically organ horn and drums, right? Oh my God, that's right. just did you and and so, I mean, can you talk about the jazz aesthetic though? I mean, in the feel, I mean, you you can't just fake that. I mean, listen, I mean, country, you know, uh, you, you know, first things were on the two beat, and then Dixieland went to you know on the four, but when you talk about swinging a band, I mean, can you talk in your own way how you learned to swing the band? Just by listening. I mean, if there's anything I got good in my life in this body is my ears. My ears uh, have gotten me wherever I've gone to as far as music goes, because uh, I still to this day don't read linear music. I've been fortunate enough to let to play with people who allow me to do, you know, what I do, and in within the structures of, of a chord. So if you know, give me a chord chart, I can do that. But if you put notes in front of me, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> a lot of a lot of peeps don't still aren't great sight readers, and there's some of them, but they have such great feel, you know. But you're, yeah. Would you say? Would you say that you're? Uh, can you talk? Putting your ego aside, uh, you're being very modest, obviously. But it's like, can you just talk about an experience that you had consistently, even in your amateur years, when your ears grew the most, based on the fact that the other people that you were playing with. When it grew the most, I guess yeah, kind of like when I was uh, I went to uh, Monterey Peninsula College for like a year and a half or so, and I joined the uh, the jazz band. Somehow or another, they let me get in there, and I actually played with them for a couple of days or so, and we played, had a great time, and then when something came up where something had to be specific on some charts or something, the guy teacher realized I couldn't read. And uh, that broke my heart because I had to be excused. Hmm. Uh, but it uh, 
they didn't know it in top then, so I thought everything was cool. So at that point, I realized that you know, um, I wasn't destined for, you know, trying to program. I, I you know, actually, I wasn't even running around looking for new stuff. I, it was just stuff that was always coming to me. I would make up stuff while I'm driving, or if I was sitting on the toilet, or I still do it today. Matter of fact, before you called, I was trying to kick out this melody in my head that's been screwing with me fucking all morning. I love it. Did Paul Stallworth still burning, burning creator? So you you've had these. That's what's driven you. It's not about getting you know you know trying to you know comp this person or that. You just you've had melodies in your head your whole life. Oh yeah, yeah, and and and. And, you know, and of course, some of the ones that I hear that are out there, uh, and some of them are really unfortunate because some of them I really hate, but they, <laughs> I guess they call them earworms or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, even before Attitudes ever was conceived, because we're going to have to spend at least an hour just alone on Attitudes, but the the can you talk about a time in your career uh, in your own world when a melody materialized and it actually came into a, a, a particular song that, that wound up on, on a record? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, the one that comes to mind immediately is uh, some, a tune I wrote with Harry Nilsson hmm. called Easy. Wow. And we did it, we did it at like something like right near around six or between six and eight o'clock in the morning at some bar in Hollywood that they opened up for us just to come in and play pool. <laughs> and so we're playing pool and, and, and drinking and, and uh, we started singing this thing and it just came out and then we actually recorded it that same day, next that same night that we went back in the studio I'm looking um, here. Is it? Is it? Uh, I got two. Easier for me, or it's so easy. It's so easy. There it is. All right, can we listen to it? Sure. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's put it in, baby. Um, here we go.
I mean, you are, are, I mean, you just made my day again because I've, I've never even, this is, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not that schooled in, in, in music. I mean, I certainly, I get my hands on this eclectic stuff and, but this is, um, so this, this was like Sunset Strip, but I mean, Dawn Sessions you were playing or you just in there just drinking whiskey and playing pool? Well, we were in the studio that night before and, uh, and as usual, you know, when you get out, sometimes you're still humming. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we goes, Harry goes, well, listen, we got to go to this place. I know where we can go over there and get in. They'll open the door for us. I go, well, okay, but, you know, I, my wife's got to go to work, and i got to pick her up and, and take her to <laughs> Warner Brothers to do her job. So I actually drove home, picked her up, took her there, and I went back and met him at the bar. We That's when we did that thing and then we started about talking about how things are so hard but really it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> i love paul stallworth dude this is my i mean these are the interviews i live in so i mean this i just want to go back to something because i've interviewed again for the for the audience the, I'm, I'm were you playing bass on that track or drums or, or on, on bass. bass so i know stallworth from a bass component but i mean i've interviewed a lot of the cats uh david garibaldi from tower of power gregorico yeah from, Sly Stone, Michael Shreve. I'm very tight with all these cats, and I've interviewed them all. And um, Michael, Michael was at San Mateo Community College in the big band. I don't know if he read it that that time. Garibaldi was in a big in the in a Dick Crest big band, and I want you to, if you can, how did that experience? I know it ended in heartbreak because you couldn't read, but but what what did you walk away from? What did you, because like swinging a big band is not like swinging a quartet. Did you, could you talk a little bit about what, what you learned from that? Um, well, I guess at the time, maybe that if I could, you know, without, don't be afraid to go for it, you know. Um, there's a certain amount of confidence it gave me, I guess. Because if you don't have that, then you you know you you're less liable to go outside that bubble, you know. What bubble? Can you? I mean, for the non-musician, when you say go forward and outside the bubble, what what do you mean? Well, like um, like right now, when I, I don't get to play much with a lot of guys, but when we do, I play with some folks. It's it's all freestyle, and. The bubble meaning that, you know, I, I notice like and I watch a lot of people jam, just, you know, free jamming. They'll, uh, they'll be, it'll be great, you know, it'll stay in a group, but there's like, there's no, there's no arms and legs to it kind of a thing. I dig. And uh, for me, when I get to play, it's, which is so great, it's like, wow, I, I feel, I guess they also come some drums because I play my bass and keyboards and guitar just like I play drums. <laughs> basically wow. only there's there's these notes and so i'm i i have a great memory for patterns and stuff you know um uh and just moment things uh so i can when i when i'm playing with someone i'm i barely feel like sometimes i feel like i'm taking the lead but i'm really listening to everybody and supporting everyone and that opens up a lot of doors well, especially if you, I mean, this is to me like an incredible, I mean, 
did you have perfect pitch or, or did you have any of these other sort of innate things where, because you're here, you're listening when you're listening, mm-hmm. it raises the collective consciousness of the group tenfold. And it's, I believe that it, it, and, and, and one of the things today you look, you go see gigs and you know, you'll see drummers and they're very busy or bass players and they're very, they got to play a lot of notes and they got to be, yeah. you know, and they got to take up a lot of space and there's just not a lot of soul. You know, I don't, I don't feel the, and I don't, I definitely don't feel the space, and I just right. And that word space, I love that because I, I forget who he said that it's, it's a jazz musician that said it's not the notes you play, it's the ones you yeah, go. Yeah, you know who said that? Miles fucking Davis. Miles, yeah, exactly, that's right. exactly. Right. You know, and that's the point is that uh, it's this, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. And yeah, I just got a chill thinking about that. I just, woo. <laughs> it's beautiful, dude. You're like, I, I mean, were you? ever did you ever want to be you just wanted to cut your own so you're you were in uh i'm sorry was it monterey you said and the big band kind of uh the thing didn't materialize and then you kind of ventured more slowly did you just kind of go down the coast to uh la la land how did you wind up in the in the well that's interesting i i was pretty much set on sticking around that area because i like monterey it's a great place to live at the time and uh, I could play music every weekend or if I wanted to. And, you know, I had friends and uh, had a good job working at a furniture store. And some guy, a friend of mine came up and he played guitar. And he says, you know, there's this guy named Round Robin who's playing in Salinas. And uh, he's got this record out called Land of a Thousand Dances. Hmm. And he's got this bass player who's either leaving or he wasn't happy with. And he said, why don't you come out and take a listen, you know, and I, I came out and I listened and uh, actually I sat in for a couple of tunes. Next thing I knew, I got the job with him and I was off on the road for uh, almost two years. Holy cow. I'm sorry. The, you had not ever played the bass in a professional context? No. 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 Paul Stallworth in the most matter-of-fact fashion. I mean, this is ridiculous. I just got off the phone with Chuck Rainey and he was just, I mean, we had an, a cathartic conversation he was talking about charles mingus taught him how to with the upright taught him with the electric how to make the notes round um and uh, you're talking here about you didn't have i mean you just picked up the bass and said well all right i got natural feel and talent so i'm just going to try it yeah well before that particular night i had been playing bass like with the a little local uh, filipino group with an accordion and something else. Were they singing? Were they singing in a different language? No, we were doing you know current kind of tunes, pop tunes, familiar tunes. But we just had an accordion player. The accordion is what got us all those little Filipino gigs because uh-huh. they like accordion. I was going to say, why is it Filipino? They they love the accordion. That's interesting. Yeah, they seem to like it because we could play a lot of songs that are that three fourths the stuff. You know, which is, which. <laughs> Sounds great. When I, love, I love it. I love it. I dig. So, uh, so, so, at, you know, that's all I was doing. But so when I sat in with Robin, that was a whole other thing because he played, he sang tunes that I was familiar with also. Sam and Dave tunes and uh, stuff like that. So, Was it a, I, I don't, was this cat, uh, was it a Chitlin Circuit kind of gig? I mean, what, what, kind of, what kind of clubs were you playing? Pretty much, yeah. You know, the Phase Three in Oregon, or uh, some 
whiskey bar in Wichita, Kansas, uh, uh, Boston at the uh, the war zone up in Boston. Oh my God! Uh, the, the, I, I the combat zone. Yeah. Oh my exactly. God, I, dude! I used to, I, inter, I there was a professor up in Vermont that I'm friends with, and he used to those organ trio gigs in those in those burlesque houses. Man, that was like three three hours three hour gigs, one hour on, one hour off. It put money in people's pockets. That was an oh, amazing. Man, we, that's amazing. We had we had five hour sets. These were horrible. <laughs> We, in one one night, some guy comes in there and he threw a pipe bomb in the damn place. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, after the thirty days we were up, we wanted to leave. The guys, the club owners, didn't want us to go, so they would take our, you know, our equipment and stash it somewhere. And where they stashed it, we found found some other bands' equipment down there too. <laughs> they hold you hot. They hold you hostage there. Yeah, so we managed to get it out of there, and we split out of the hotel and beat it out of town and three o'clock in the morning um but yeah and then i went back there years later when i played with al Giro and i had to go down there just to see what it was like it's still the same <laughs> well there was also like a very infamous uh football player from harvard that was murdered it kind of shut down that whole combat zone those things were thriving at one time i mean I, when i interviewed ahmad jamal i opened with this huge monologue and i mentioned that he played burlesque houses and he said how do you who tipped you off to that i said I said, Ahmad, I said, after doing a thousand primary source interviews with the cats, I just know that was a place of employment for you guys. And, you know, they yeah. were just, they were trading off. That was the other thing. I mean, he was he would trade off. He would play key, uh, piano and it was just piano and drums. And so they just trade off back and forth for eight hours. I mean, it was exhausting. Yeah. But at the same time, oh, my God, it was just when you look back at that, do you feel like it was uh, it helped you? uh find your own individual voice. I mean, again, we're talking to somebody here who kind of, you were naturally gifted, but yeah. Okay. There was grief and pipe bombs and weirdness, but, <laughs> but, but what, what did you take away from that? That, that was positive for your career. Chops. That has a very interesting, that, that, that connotation is very different now because people, people walk out of academia now. I don't believe vocabulary and music. Well, I mean, I mean, chops, chops in life too, not just on the instrument. Can you give an example? Uh, well, some of the stuff that I would kind of compose in my mind or in musically, they were all kind of a reflection of what I've, we'd been through. Like we, we did a tune called Power, which was uh, we used for our break tune when we take a break, but it was like this really powerful, uh, strong thing, which we related back to you know what it took for us to get out of Boston or what we went through in Boston and the power of uh, the power of power. Uh, that's what I mean by the chops. I mean, you know, I, I learned a lot of stuff there, not just licks and stuff, but uh, gave me an insight about timing and, uh, and what I should be doing and how I should be doing it and, and where I shouldn't be doing it. Uh, and, you know, that all go, went along with just being on the road, too. Right, um, man. There was it was it was a uh, life experience. I mean, were you were you yeah. was that? Uh, did you feel like your life was in danger at times? I mean, I've talked to cats. Oh yeah. You know. You, you so you you had because I mean I talked to cats that you know that were like uh, guys that were playing with Yusef Latif. They'd wind up in some. This again, this is different, but they were in Colorado somewhere and. 
uh you know it was a all white town and next thing you mm-hmm. know you know next thing you know they're they're being chased out of town by that that clan you know and yeah yeah did that happen to you on the road well yeah several times uh let's see we had we had a run in uh with some folks down in uh what is that place? in texas um in abilene I remember <laughs> no yeah. uh it was with the center of the birch society Oh uh, yeah, I have to look that up. All right, so but yeah, but uh, it was a it was a mixed race band you were in. Yeah, uh, the, you know they were looking at us because we were all Hollywood because you know we're, I was wearing elephant pants and you know <laughs> long hair yeah, and yeah. and I, got, I always got the thing about oh what are you trying to do look like Jimi Hendrix you know, <laughs> and, you know we got ran out of uh, even Southern California man. Uh, uh, Oxnard, I think it was. Mm-hmm. He played some beer bar somewhere down there, and and boy, it was. We never even finished the set, man. I just says, you know, we didn't need this shit. Let's pack up and go, you know. And we did. We packed up and left. And, and then the uh, showdown with guns at the OK Corral in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Jeez, I mean. You, these were just patrons going at each other, or you guys, you guys had your own, well, uh, own. Your back? Yeah, well, they came after our drummer, who was. Uh, it's funny. He was. Uh, we said Art Abodili. He was uh, from Saudi or someplace, uh, and he he got into it with these cowboy boot guys there at the bar, and they uh, they were calling him a uh, what was it a. Uh, camel jockey or something right and it set him off and he got pissed so they followed him back to the motel where we were staying and then they called him out they got him out in the parking lot and there was guns and then my oh this guy ron robin who we were working for he came out with a gun and then i thought oh my god (laughs) (laughs) what the hell just want to play some music, man. Wow, and that and that cultural bias and racism reigns supreme again. Unbelievable. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's it's just blowing me away, man. It's just uh, yeah, like a bad dream coming all over again. Um, so um, I just before we I I could go for an hour. I, I have to get my daughter from school, and I know you got to go. Um, so did could you just talk about how you met? Jim Keltner? Yes. There was a thing in L.A. at the record plant uh, called, at one time years ago, I don't remember when, it was early 70s, I'm sure, um, that Gary Kelgren and Chris Stone, who owned the record plant, excuse me a minute, get some water here. No problem. Uh, put on a uh, situation that was not only to help promote the studio, but giving a venue for artists from all over the country, all, all over the world for that matter, to come to uh, on special nights. And it was called the Keltner Fan Club. And, it was uh, called the Keltner Fan Club? Yes, the Jim Keltner Fan Club. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, <laughs> he had his own fan club at that point. Well, they they did it for him. It wasn't something he set up, you know. It, it was pretty cool, and like I said, it was a big, it was a scene, and, and uh, we had Studio C, which was this big studio, so that means a lot of people could be in there playing different instruments and stuff. 
And uh, somehow or another, I got invited down there, and I went there, and I thought, wow, this is crazy, man. I mean, everybody from Mick Jagger to, I mean, you name it at the time, they would be in and out of there. Um, wow. And so I, Some, I went yeah, there. Go ahead. Go ahead. I went there a couple times, and uh, and that was probably near the end of the the, the whole scene. So after after a couple three times going there, the the numbers of people would turn from you know twenty five down to fifteen, then down to ten, and all of a sudden it turned out to be just four people left. It was Cal there, me, Cooch. <laughs> And David Foster. Oh my God! Just one night randomly, it got down to four. Yeah, oh. and I think there was a, a percussionist and somebody else too. When we were still jamming, but we liked what was going on. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like, it was like, uh, I don't know, like four ticks in a bucket. You know, they were like, it was like getting off on each other. And so we would, we would actually go back there many times and get the studio time for free. We would wait three and four hours sometimes at night, you know, to get into a studio, you know, and wouldn't get into like two o'clock in the morning, and we'd just blow out till, you know, couldn't handle it anymore. And uh, we had this engineer Lee Kiefer who uh, used to like to hang out late, and I hung out with him, and we did a lot of editing and stuff, and put together all these tracks. And Keltner brought uh, Harris George down to. Listened to them. He liked it and signed us. And from hence on, we were attitudes. Paul Stallworth, I don't. Can you look at your calendar? Can we set up a time to do part two? Yeah, I'm actually enjoying this. Oh, uh, no, I mean, I'm telling you, this is. I just. You're, you're amazing, too. Um, I was just going to ask you about a week from this Saturday, the, uh, the 26th. Let me get my book out here. Yeah. I'm glad you're having fun. I'm sure I'm bringing stuff up you haven't thought about in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone told me we should have written a couple of books by now. Well, you know, this is the start. Just put, put it that way. That's it. 26 looks good. Uh, noon, Pacific. Noon. Okay. Okay. And uh, if I don't talk to you before, I'll get you a copy of this. I might, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put this one and I'll send this one to you tonight. I'll get a link to you tonight. Oh, okay. Okay, and then we'll do part two, and we'll see where it goes from there. But uh, so great to connect with you, man. Really great to, to hear you, man. Thank you, thank you. And uh, I really appreciate you helping me dig out these things in the old chest. Well, it's <laughs> and it's and it's it, believe me, we're like you can't explain your musical talent, and I can't explain when the spirits call. But I mean, they did, and now we're here. So much love, dude. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Later on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Big day here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Chuck Rainey, Paul Stallworth. We'll be back tomorrow with Charlie Musselwhite and Lamar White and Craig Pretzinger on the Jake Feinberg Show.